it's good to see you this morning. Uh, today is, I would say, arguably, easily, a day we celebrate the most important day in all of human history, bar none. There's none other like it. In fact, that's why uh, today, other than weddings and funerals, it's the one day I wear my suit. It's the same guy up here, in case you're wondering, if you're not sure. But it is, and, and, and it, it is the most important day in all of human history. Well, last fall, my dad passed away. Many of you know if you're part of our church, uh, after a bout with cancer. And uh, after his funeral, my family, we were home together for about a week. Uh, all my brothers, I have three younger brothers, two sister-in-laws, a nephew and a niece. And everybody's crammed in the house for, for about a week, week and a half. And towards the end of that week, uh, we, were, we were ready to get out of the house. We, we were... We love each other, but, you know, it, it was time to do something different. So we decided, hey, let's go to a movie. And uh, my brother suggested a movie, and the one they suggested uh, was The Hunger Games. Are you familiar with that? It's really disturbing, just so you know. I don't, you, really, don't, don't read the books, don't go see it, um, in my opinion. But uh, take that for what it's worth. I, I, we went. And if you don't know anything about this movie, it's... It's, it started out as a series of three books aimed at teenagers, right? And uh, these three books quickly got translated into uh, four movies. The fourth one comes out later this fall. But, but we didn't, we, I had heard of them, you know, I, I knew kids who were reading the Hunger Games. I knew people in their family, they had, you know, they had kids who had read them. And I'd heard about the movies obviously coming out because they were blockbuster films. It's like, so far to date, it's like the 15th highest grossing series in Hollywood history, something like that. And there's still a movie yet to come out. And anyway, as Hannah and I aren't exactly, you know, big purveyors of, of teenage fiction. So we hadn't read the books. We didn't know, but, but we went along. My brothers wanted to go and we went with them anyway. And did I mention it was the third movie in the series that we went to? We hadn't read any of the books. We hadn't seen the first two movies. We had no clue what we were going to see. No clue. So on the 10-minute drive to the theater, my sister-in-law tried to fill us in. She told us everything about the first two books, the first two movies, told us everything about it. She told us about Katniss and how Katniss is in love with, with Gail, but Peta's in love with Katniss. And so Gail and Peta have a kind of a, a fight going on, a little feud. And she told us about President Snow. And, and my, you, none of these make sense to a lot of you, do they? Some of you, do they do? President Snow, Phoenix, Senna, Haymitch, who had actually won the previous games, District 12, Pan Am, all these things. She told us all about it. And when she was done, I still didn't have a clue what she was talking about. <laughs> and we went to the movie and we saw it. And, you know, I could name maybe characters from the movie. I could tell short stories or maybe a kind of some of the plot. But I really didn't know much about the story. And that's, I think, how most people approach the Bible. They know the characters of the story. They know Noah. They know Abraham. They know Moses. They know David. They know Jesus. They know some stories of the Bible. They know that, you know, Noah had an ark, an archiarchy, if you sang it when you were little. And that, that Moses parted the Red Sea. That Abraham maybe sacrificed his son Isaac or tried to. It, that, that David beat Goliath. Most people know that story. They know that Jesus died on the cross, but, but they don't know the whole story. They don't know how all these small stories fit into the big story. 
And unless you know the whole story, or at least the context of it, you're totally lost. You can be totally lost. And somebody can tell you about the resurrection on a day like Easter, and you go, yeah, I know Jesus rose from the grave that day, but okay. I also know there's people who worship Buddha and people who do this and that. And I, I don't, they don't know the whole context of the story. Well, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to attempt to give you the whole overarching con, con, context, that's the word, of the Bible, of God's story. Are you ready? Tell you what, let me pray. And then, because uh, I'm going to need prayer. This is a lot to cover. And we're going to go for it. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks, as we've prayed and sang already, that he rose from the grave, that he paid the penalty for my sin, for for all of our sin on the cross. Uh, Father, I pray that as we uh, look at your story as revealed in Scripture, that uh, you would encourage our hearts. I pray also you'd convict hearts who, who maybe would understand this for the first time. And that as they do, Holy Spirit, you would be working in their heart in such a way that they would find their place in the story and trust Jesus for their life and for their salvation. So uh, help me now, I pray. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any good story, any good story has four parts to it. There's four parts to any good story. It starts off with an exposition, usually, or like an introduction. And this expedi- ex, not expedition, exposition It answers kind of the question, how did everything begin? It lays out the setting, where the story takes place. It gives you the protagonist. Who's the hero of the story? Excuse me. It gives you the antagonist. Who's the villain of the story? It lays out some supporting characters who are going to help move the story forward. When I went to see the Hunger Games, my sister-in-law tried to give me that, but I was so lost. Well, it starts with an introduction, an exposition, and then it goes on. And after that stage is set, there's rising action. And the story kind of takes off. And, and all the characters are, have been introduced, or at least most of them, the ones important to get the story moving. And, and they all start to play their part, moving the story toward its high point. Moving the story toward the point where it has its climax. And all of the characters play a role in that. Some small, some big. But they all play a role in moving the story forward until finally, the third part of any good story is when it comes to a climax, when, when it comes to its focal point, when it comes to the high point, and the antagonist and the protagonist have a final major conflict, and if it's a good story, who wins? The protagonist, the good guy. The good guy wins. And then, it, then the story kind of comes down from that, and there's some resolution to the story. And we find out kind of what's going to happen next. Or sometimes you're left hanging a little bit. But at least you know what is going to happen next isn't going to be what, what, what was really important has already been settled. And so now we're okay to move forward. That's, that's the outline of any good story. Any good story. You know why? I think it's because God's written it on our hearts in the way that we bear his image. So that anyone who tells a story tells it in the same way God tells his story. Because that's the flow of his story. That's the exact same flow of his story. So to start God's story, let's go back to the beginning and set the stage. In fact, we'll go back to the very beginning. First words of the Bible. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might know this. It starts out like this. The first four words are, in the beginning, help me out, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That's the beginning of the story. 
God is at the beginning of the story. Genesis 1-1 tells us that because it's his story. He's the main character. God is eternal. He has always existed. Now, I know that's, that's impossible for us to get our minds around, right? Because we're stuck in time. And, and the way we understand everything is in the context of time. And how it relates from one moment to the next, to the next, and past, and present, and future. For God, there's no such thing. He's eternal. He's outside of time. He sees it all at once. That's why the Bible says with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He sees it all at once. We learn other things about God as we go through the story then. He's the protagonist. He's the main character. We learn that he's the king and he's the sovereign ruler of everything. In Psalm 95, it says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands, they formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's the king and sovereign ruler. He's also the holy and righteous judge. He's the one who's going he's gonna to judge things in his story. And he alone He's also loving and good, all loving and good. There's nothing about God that isn't good. Did you know that? Nothing about him that is not good and loving. In fact, John says it this way, God is love. He's loving. And he's also the creator of everything. He's the one who created it all. He's telling us this story and, and, and he's the creator. He's the one who created the story. He's the one who created all the parts of the story. Isaiah writes, have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't faint or grow weary. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above. It proclaims his handiwork. It proclaims what he has made with his hands. He's the creator. So it starts with God and then it moves to creation. This is all in this introduction. He's giving us the scene for his story. And in the beginning, if we kept reading that verse, it would say God spoke. And, and, and you go on and everything came into existence by just his breath. He just spoke it. You ever tried to do that and just speak something into existence? Like on a cold day, I can make fog and that's about it. Right? Right? No, God, he created everything just by speaking it, his word tells us. And he created it good. Everything that was created, it was filled with with a dramatic display of galaxies and stars and planets. The psalmist says, you laid the foundation of the earth. The the heavens are the work of your hands. Earth was created as a paradise. It was full of beauty and wonder. And in it, we saw God's attributes. One author writes about it like this, those first days. God's creative artistry was shown in the world he made and everything he placed in it. It was a thing of gorgeous and stunning beauty. The hills were awash in multi-hued flowers. No weevil was there to consume their leaves and no mites to infect their blooms. The soil was packed with life-giving nutrients and There were no thorns, thistles, and weeds to be found. Trees were laden with the luscious, sweetest, most succulent fruit. There were no plagues or pollutants. Nature grew, bloomed, and produced without struggle or toil. How many of you who have a garden go, that would be sweet. 
There was untainted natural beauty as far as the eye could see. It literally covered the earth. And of all the beauty that God created, you know what was most beautiful? Two people that he made, Adam and Eve. And unlike all the rest of his creation, when he creates them, he says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Unlike anything else in all of creation, when he starts at the beginning of the story, he creates everything and he creates humankind and Adam and Eve, he creates them in his image, like him. You ever see a little kid who looks like their dad? They're in his image. They're in his likeness. The Bible says that when God created us, he created all of us in such a way so that all of us in some way reflect him. We, we all uniquely reflect his image and different parts of his image as individuals and as human beings. And then God told them, he said, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He gave them instructions to, to be his friend, to worship him and to fill the earth with more worshipers. And he told them, all of this is yours. You can have all of it. And, and there was harmony. There was God and there was creation and there was harmony in the beginning. The beginning of this story is fantastic. There was total harmony. There was no, no strife in human relationships. No divorce, no sickness, no pain, no suffering. Everything was in harmony. No natural disasters, no disease. And most importantly, their relationship with God was perfect. He would walk in the garden with them. And there was harmony in the beginning. But like any story, it doesn't end there. It'd be nice if that was the story and they lived happily ever after, wouldn't it? And I believe that's God's heart and one day that will happen. But in the meantime, something happened, something known as the fall. Because you and I, we look at that, we hear that story and we go, harmony and peace and no strife in any relationships. That doesn't sound much like my life or the world I know. You're telling me God created this place? God created this. It doesn't line up with what the Bible says. The Bible says he created it good. I, I, I know people who are sick. I know people who have died. I know people who have hurt me. I've hurt other people. How does that square with a God who's good and loving? Well, here's what happened. We've come to the rising action in the story. Adam and Eve were not told how long they lived in the garden in that harmony, in that utopia. <clears throat> Could have been a long time. We don't know. The, the author goes straight on to the major part of the story where Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And there was disobedience for the first time. God had given him everything except one thing. He said, don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden because if you eat from its fruit, what will happen? He said, you will die. You will die if you eat that fruit. Kind of like telling your, your child, don't touch the stove, it's hot, it'll hurt. <laughs> and they touch it and then what happens? They scream because it hurts. And they disobeyed him. And God would use this single rule, one rule, simply to test their loyalty to him and their obedience and commitment to him. 
You know, some people say, well, why didn't God just make us so we can't sin, so we always love him, so that didn't happen? Well, if he did that, what kind of God would he be? He'd be a tyrant, wouldn't he? Where he just made us always love him, made us always do and march in step with exactly what he commanded. There'd be no love there. There'd be no love. Instead, he gives us mysteriously, because God is so sovereign and in control of everything, And I don't know how these two things square because I'm human and and he's not. So he can explain it to me one day. But even while he's sovereign over everything, he gives me free will to make choices. And he gave Adam and Eve free will. And he told them, don't eat from this tree. And like we sang earlier, oh, look at the tree. Oh, isn't the fruit good to eat? And then it goes all and Adam will die. Eve takes the fruit. And you know, sometimes guys look at that and they go, yeah, see, it was Eve's fault. Told you. Except what does she do right after she takes a bite? She turns and hands it to her husband, which tells you what? He was there the whole time, coward. Right? He was there the whole time. And she hands him the fruit and he eats and The momentary pleasure of tasting the fruit turned quickly to shame and to guilt. See, what had happened is a fallen angel named Satan, here's the antagonist entering the story. He he comes to them and he takes on the form of a serpent and he says, did God really say don't eat from every tree in the garden? See, he lied to him right away. Did God really say that? And Eve says, no, he just said this tree. Well, he doesn't want you to eat it because he says, if you eat from that tree, this is in Genesis 3, if you're curious. If you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't have your, your, good, your good in mind at all. He's very selfish. He doesn't want you to be like him. Yeah, let's back up into the story. You back up towards the beginning where there's God and there's creation and there's harmony. When he created Adam and Eve, what was unique about Adam and Eve and the way that they were created? They were created, unlike anything else in creation, like God in his likeness, in his image. And here comes the antagonist, little snake. He's like, (laughs) he's like, eat of this and then you'll be like God. He lies to him right out of the gate. And what happens? They, they disobey. They believe the lie. And ever since, all of us have been believing that lie. That if we do enough good, God will love us. If we do enough right, we can be more and more like God. If, if, if we, we help enough old ladies cross the street, we can get to heaven. If I give enough to the poor, I can be saved. And no, no. Because once sin entered the world, God said what would happen after they ate of the fruit. There was disobedience and then there would be consequence. They would die. They would die. And not just death physically, that's part of it, but also death spiritually. That, that's where sin enters all of creation. And the Bible tells us that, that even creation moans and groans because of sin. It's why we have natural disasters. It's why there's disease. It's, it's why there's evil. It's why people are, are, are wicked. See, we're, we're going to die physically, but we're still born spiritually. We're born dead spiritually now. All because of Adam. 
and Eve. And it's passed down through the human bloodline to every person who's ever taken a breath on this earth. And the consequence is they're all dead and they'll all die physically. And so if we're ever going to get back to resolution in the story, these, these people, these characters in the story, you and I, we need, we need something to help us. We have a great need, don't we? We have a great need in which God introduces a rescue. See, right at the beginning, right after Adam and Eve sin, they take the fruit, they eat of it, they, they, they're, they're in shame and in their spiritual shame and guilt, they cover themselves physically with fig leaves and they hide from God who had been only good to them. Who had been only good to them. And what does God do? Does he start throwing stuff? Does he go, get out, don't ever come back in my face. No, if you read the text, it says God went looking for them. He went looking for them. Now there was consequence to their sin. He ended up removing them from the garden. But if you get to chapter three, verse 15, he promises that one day there will be someone, a savior who will come and will, that snake will bite his heel But that won't be a deadly blow because he will crush the snake's head and put an end to all of this. It was the first presentation of the gospel. It was a promise of someone right away to Adam and Eve. They didn't deserve it, but God provides an opportunity. says there's going to be a rescue. And and here's where the story's heading from here on out. It's this promise that's made going forward that there's going to be somebody coming on the scene. And now every character throughout the story of the Bible... They're playing a part, advancing the story toward this one who would bring the rescue. Noah does this. Abraham does this. Moses does this. David does this. Solomon does this. Every character all the way through, good and bad, they're all pointing forward to there's a rescue coming. There's a rescue coming. He's coming. God had made this promise. And then we get into the story a few thousand years and his promise is kept. It's not just a promise made, but it's a promise that's kept. See, the question for centuries is who will this be? Who will the savior be? Ultimately, the answer is God himself. God would be the one to rescue his creation. He was there in the beginning He created all things. He loved them, said everything was good. Even in their disobedience and sin, he went after them and looked for them. And then ultimately, he keeps his promise and he's the one who comes to save them. God, about 2,000 years ago, put on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and came and lived the perfect life that not one of us has ever come close to living. And he lived it perfectly. See, other religions would tell you that, man, if you're good enough, you can become a God. If you're good enough, do enough good things and then you become God. And all of their gods ultimately are men who became God. Not in the real story. The real story is that God put on flesh and came to live among us, Jesus Christ. 
And not only this, his life was perfect. He enjoyed a perfect fellowship and obedience with God. But this ultimately led, he was here to rescue. So it ultimately led to him paying the penalty that Adam and Eve and you and I have to pay for our sin, which is death, both spiritually and physically. See, Romans tells us, Paul writes, he says, the wages of sin is death. Like, I don't know what the wages of working at McDonald's is right now. I don't know how much it is or what the wages is of where you work, but that's what you earn for your work, right? What you earn for your sin, what Josh Wyland earns for his sin is death. I earn spiritual death, I earn physical death, and I earn eternal death where I'm separated forever apart from God in hell, apart from God's grace. Yet Jesus didn't sin. And Jesus on the cross died. So here's a perfect man who paid the penalty for something he didn't do. And it says while he's on the cross and even before he went to the cross, he's in agony and he prays. He says, Father, take this cup from me. The cup ultimately was the cup of God's wrath poured out on sinners because you're like, I thought God was loving. Well, he is. And part of his love demands that when something is wrong and evil, he has to deal with it. What kind of a good God would it be if, if when something happened, murder and evil, if he didn't punish that? And just said, oh, it's okay, I'm good and loving, it's all right, we'll let it go. No. Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath and he drinks it. And he drinks it all. So that you and I don't have to drink a drop of it. Peter says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, the Christian gospel is this, that I'm so flawed and I'm so messed up that God had to die for me on the cross to make me new. Yet I'm so unbelievably, unimaginably loved by my creator that he died for me gladly. That's an incredible truth. And here on the cross, we come to the high point of the story because Jesus dies on the cross and he says, it is finished. That's it. There's nothing left to do. No one else can earn any drop of God's favor. It's all been earned right here. It's totally, completely done, finished. That's it. And three days later, to prove that was true, on the day we celebrate today, 2,000 years ago, he rose from death. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. He was an innocent man. And he paid the penalty in my place on the cross, the death I deserve. And he rose from the grave and said, here, let's do an exchange. I'll, I'll take your death. I'll take your sin, Josh. I'll take your filth. I'll carry it with me on the cross. Three days later, he rose again. And he goes, here, I give you my life. And you'll never have to pay it because I paid it for you. And that's the high point of the story. The protagonist, God, and the antagonist, Satan, come together and collide. And the protagonist wins. And, and he stomps on the head. He crushes the head of that serpent. And it's over. The strife is over. The victory's won. But that's not the end of the story. The story goes on to where that's the high point of it. But now there's some resolution. 
and ultimately the restoration of how it was. See, God's story ends the way it begins. He goes through and in the end, he makes everything right back to the way he originally wanted it. He restores it all. And how does he do that? Well, the Bible says that he is making all things new. That when you become a Christian, you're a new creation. You're a new creature. You're brand new. Now, it's curious how God does this. He's outside of time. He sees it all. But for us in time, there's this overlap where here's my old self and I'm dying. And here's my new self. I'm brand new. And there's some overlap in between until Jesus returns. And then I'm totally, fully, completely new to the end. Because he's making all things new and one day will be forever with God. Where I'll be completely new. Forever. And it's only because of Jesus Christ paying the penalty on the cross. Do you see it now? That's the arc. That's the plot line of the entire Bible. And everything in the Bible plays a part in moving the story forward. In moving the story forward to the cross. And then after the cross, moving from the cross toward that restoration and toward that renewal. And every story that you read in the Bible, everything you hear about the Bible, it's all about that story and all of it comes to a climax in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now here's the curious thing. What you may not realize is you are part of this story. You are. You are part of this story. You are part of God's story. You are his creation and you have a part in his story. Like, like every other character in the story, you started your life stillborn and in sin. Needing a savior, needing a rescue because, because of Adam and Eve's sin, that, that death was passed down to you and to me. And people say, ah, that's kind of mean. So you're saying, I deserve God's wrath. Yeah. That's really mean. I don't know if I like you. I don't know if I'm coming back. Forget this. Let me tell you, actually, that's really loving for me to tell you that. Because it's the true story. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you. But it's not the whole story, because the rest of the story then is that everyone in that story, every character has the opportunity then to either believe God's promise, look to Jesus who kept it on the cross, and give him my life and my sin so that he would take my death and give me his life and his righteousness. Or I can say that story's for the birds. I'm going to take my chances and go on my own. And then you would be like Adam and Eve who believed a lie. Who believed a lie in the garden. And you'd believe a lie that this story isn't true. And I'm warning you, it's true. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's the rescue. You're a part of this story one way or the other. The only question left is how will you tell the story? Will you see yourself as rightly in that story and repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and saving faith? Or will you ignore it and be sent like so many in the end to pay the penalty for your own sin for eternity in a place called hell? Being punished by God for your sin. The way Jesus talks about that place. You don't want to go anywhere near it. 
commend to you the gospel. Understand the story is true. Trust Jesus Christ. And then what happens is he takes your life and he weaves it miraculously into advancing his story forward. Just like everyone else in all of the Bible and all of human history. And I want to share one story with you now on video of a, of a girl many of you know, who's been part of our church for a few years, who, uh, whose story is one that really, when you look at her story, it, it models the gospel of, of being in need and then a rescue and, and a restoration and, and one day all things new and forever with God. So watch this story and see how maybe God would take your story and weave it in such a way as he did Priscilla's. I'm a refugee and um, my parents got arrested by the government because we are Christian and we took away my parents so we have to run for our life from my country. When he lost your parents when you were 13, uh, it was the most painful ever uh, in your life and well, you will never forget about it. My name is Quantin Pa. I go by Priscilla and I'm from Burma. And here's my story. My dad, he is a uh, he is a traveler. He drive truck. Yeah, he carries stuff and take away stuff. And my mom has a market, small market. It was fun to be around my parents all the time because they're funny. <laughs> yeah. How long since you've seen your parents? Um, it's seven years because I left my country to, in 2007. What was that like? Why did you have to leave? Do you remember much of the journey? Most Burmese people, they, they are Buddhist, they, they worship Buddhist, they worship idol, actually. And uh, um, there's a lady, she came to my house and she talked about Jesus. My dad and my mom, they got uh, accepted Christ. My dad was like completely changed, like just, he, he don't even need to like, you know, go to rehab or whatever, just done with alcohol. We invite the evangelist to come to my house and stay there and talk about Jesus to other people, share the gospel. And but like some neighbors they doesn't like us because we are Christians. So <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't want us to be there and then like so they write the letters to the government that we are telling them to become Christian. So your parents were arrested because they were perceived to be proselytizing mm -hmm. people? Yes. Because we are sharing gospel. And then, yeah, that's why they're trying to stop us not to talk about Jesus. My parents were stay home that day, and then we went to my sister's son's birthday. One of my sister's friends come and like, he, he ride the bicycle and he said, you guys need to run away now, because the government, the police, they came to your house and they arrested your parents because you guys are like, 
you know, being a Christian and stuff. And now you, if you don't run away, they're looking for you guys and they will arrest you now. So, and then that's why we ran away to my uncle's house. For like, we stayed there for 10 days and he said, no, you cannot stay here forever. And they're looking for us. We don't have anything. They have our ID and every everything. They take our house, my my, my parents' cars, market, everything that we own. So he said, you cannot live here anymore. And he sent us to another country to be in refugee. So you lost, you lost everything. Yeah. That's, that's the last day that I saw my parents. When they talk with my parents, yeah. After we left for the party, for the party party. What was going through your mind that day? I think about why this has happened to my family, you know? We love God and kind of like blaming God, you know? Why me? This happened to me. But I figured out that God had His way. I got to read one chapter um, from Seth. Is that, I think, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is that? Well, I'll show you, it's the Bible here. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has sized you except that what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So this verse, like, Touch me. And uh, and I know that God, God had His way for me. Yeah, that's how I became like uh, believing God that you know my body and I give it to Him, and after that I got peaceful. And then I I know someday I will see my parents again. Yeah. What are your parents' names? My my dad name is Tango, and my mom name is Kwachan. <laughs> it's a weird name. <laughs> In English, it's like <laughs> I remember that when we go to Thailand from Burma, we ride a small boat with like 20 people in the boat, but it's really tiny. We have to pass at night because if someone found us, we can be in the jail or they can kill us because we, we're going illegally to Thailand. And um, we go to Thailand, we have to ride a small van, it's a kind of truck, small one, and we, they put everyone in, in the van. And it's so tight, you can even move around. And after that, we go to, got to go to forest, in the jungle place. And um, sometimes we don't have drinks, we don't have food, because, you know, we, have to, we cannot be with the peoples around us, so we have to, like, go through the forest to Malaysia. And so it took seven days from Burma to Malaysia. So from Burma to Malaysia, you had to basically sneak through the jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always at night. Yes, uh, mostly at night, cause especially when we go to uh, when we go to Burma to uh, Thailand. In Thailand, we have to be in the van, but you can't see us cause there's no window, so it doesn't matter day or night. But when we are in the jungle, yeah, we have to go by night. 
So in daytime we have to be quiet. So after you go to Malaysia, then what? Malaysia, I stayed there for two and a half years. It was a hard time to live in Malaysia because we are illegal, and when police come in, they can just arrest and you know they can do whatever they want because we are illegal there. Some people they get arrested and they they sent they sent them to Thailand. I don't know what what's the reason, but they put them in the jail for like five years, ten years, and yeah, kind of stuff. And those kind of people they cannot go back to Burma. It's you know, so they come back to Malaysia in illegal way again and <laughs> stay there for like for as a refugee. I don't know how like so many people in like that situation. So did you have to hide in Malaysia too? Yes, we have to hide in Malaysia, and I also have to work because you know I have to pay for my uh, my food to be alive, and we also rent a house. But in the house we have like twenty people live in the house because all the refugee peoples live together. So when you, where did you go when you came to the U.S.? My sister, she had me and my two brothers as half family. We came here after two and a half years. The first, I landed at the Utah. I stayed there for a year with my my sister and brothers. And after a year, I moved to Indianapolis because of my aunt. She got divorced with her husband, and she had two kids. So she need, she said she need help to take care of her baby. So I said, okay, I can help you. So I I fly through. Indianapolis and stay with her. How did you get to Milford? I know Sarah. Her name is Sarah Heiser. I met her in Utah. English is my second language, so it's so difficult for me to learn. But she helped me, like some of the math problem and in reading, writing stuff. And uh, we got to know each other more and more. And uh, one day, uh, I had left. She said, "If you have any problem, just give me a call." I was in Indianapolis, and my my aunt she was getting back together with her husband. At the same time, they are moving to. Tennessee. If I move to another another state, they won't allow me because I'm already over 18. That's why I have to stay in India. And then he, she said, "No, I can't leave you alone here by yourself." So I called Sarah, Utah, and then she said, "Can you live with Becky and Arnold Doll?" I'm like, "Who are they?" <laughs> I was like, "Who are they? I don't even know who they are." Because my grandma son and Sarah was like partner, their partner. So she said, "Oh, they will take care of you. Uh, they dance parents." I know them very well in Utah. Them, she said that they are really strong Christians. They also have a church, like nice church over there. So you will like it. And she called them first, like in uh, grandpa. They say yes. They don't even think about it. They just say yes. And then she called me back, and they they accept you to stay over there to finish your high school. And I said okay. <laughs> That's how we I end up here. They picked me up on 2012. May, yeah, 29, I think, and I, I, I stay here, and I love being here, and I feel like it's home, you know, at the church. So, what was it like when you got a phone call about Priscilla? Our son Dan lives close to Ogden, Utah. He would go to Salt Lake City and mentor these refugees with right. uh, his friend Sarah. They realized she was kind of a special girl and wanted to make something of her life. And when she moved to Indianapolis, why、uh, things didn't quite work out there. And Priscilla called、uh, Sarah and Dan back and wanted a place to live. Sarah called, and Dan decided to call us. Would I know someone that would give her a home for two years?、And、I looked at him. He looked at me, and he said, "Well, why couldn't we?" It's hard to believe that I'd say that. He's the one. <laughs>
So when she gets out of line, I just, it's your fault. <laughs> so we said, well, yeah, we'll take her. But the poor kid, she came to live with two old people she didn't know. I mean, that took a lot of faith, a lot of courage. So we tried right away to make her feel at home. She's fit in just beautifully. You said it took a lot of faith for her to come, but I think too, it takes a lot of faith for you guys. Well, we didn't even think about that. It just seemed right. If God's is for us, who can be against us, you know? So we just trusted that this was the right thing to do, and we never doubted it for a minute, did we? Mm-hmm. How does your faith in Christ help you not um, dwell on the past or worry about the future? God also said that in the Bible that, you know, don't worry about your future, uh, for tomorrow. He will provide you what, everything you need. And actually, I don't have nothing now. You know, I don't have, I, I own nothing. But God gave me from, provide like from someone, I don't know, like Sarah, especially. Uh, she just come out from nowhere that, and then she helped me for, with everything. Just, <laughs> it's kind of amazing, you know. I don't even ask God that, please, or whatever. But God just, God know what I need. And He gave it to me. That's how, yeah, my life been through. But I own nothing, but I own everything. <laughs> With God. <laughs> yeah. So what are your plans now? I'm moving to Indianapolis and uh, for aviation maintenance program. I'm going to college at Vincent's University. My dream is to become a pilot, so I take maintenance first, and after that I might go to uh, flight school again for pilot. What kind of plane do you want to fly? Oh, commercial pilot. Yeah, like, uh, yes, I have a dream that I want to go back to Burma as a commercial pilot, as a job, you know, fly through, and so I can stay there and looking for my parents too. So, yeah, that's how I want to be, become a pilot. Yeah. I have a hope that God, God said all the believers will, will see each other in the heaven again. So that's what I'm believing in God, that I will see my parents in heaven with Him. And, and there's no more uh, wars and no more fighting, you know? Everyone's in the same peace and stuff. So that's what I'm hoping. And I believe in God that He's the one um, who He created us. So, you know, we are in His hand. He knows what I've been through. We, he knows what, what I'm doing now and what is going to be happening in my future. So all I do is just pray to God and give it to Him. He will show me the way. Aaron, on the video, thanks. And, uh, you know, we hear that story, and you hear her at the very end. What does she say? Why do you have hope? Well, she knew the overarching story and how she fit in. She knew that God created her. She knew that she needed a Savior, and she trusted Him. And she knew that in the hands of that Savior, her future was bright, even if in the moment it's really hard. That one day, she'll see her parents again. And that promise is the same for you as it was for Priscilla, as it was for me.
if you would turn from your sin, the Bible calls that repenting, and turn to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him to save you. He'd save you and he'd make you new. And that's something that growing up, I heard over and over and over, but it never made sense to me until I was in high school. And um, it's the greatest decision I ever made. Life didn't get a whole lot easier, but it got a whole lot better because I know where I fit in the story. Let me pray. We'll take our offering. We'll close together in song and call it a morning. Sound good? All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks that uh, you're, you're working uh, in this world to save us, to uh, rescue us from uh, the foolish, stupid choices we make. Jesus, because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of my own sin, every, every one of us, myself included, we're, we're just we're jacked up, we're messed up, and we need a Savior. Thank you that you revealed that to me and that uh, as part of your story, I know that the future is bright and that you promised to restore all things. I pray for those who, who haven't trusted you yet, that they'd see their place in the story and that uh, if it's on the side of suffering your wrath, that they would turn to the one that you offered that took their wrath for them, that they'd repent of their sin, turn to Jesus in saving faith and be made new. Father, that's the promise of Easter, and that's the climax of your entire story. We love you, and uh, we pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.